Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning. I'm Alexi Laushkin, a member here at Corpus Christi Anglican. You will hear that I'm a bit nasally, so if I pause at time for water, that's what that's about. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and our collective meditations be pleasing in your sight. Help us to see this word from the gospel afresh this morning. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We've just finished a series on Habakkuk in which Father Morgan has asked us to think a lot about communal dynamics. What is our posture? What is the posture of our collective hearts? What is the posture of the people of God? And we move, as we're heading uh, towards Advent, we move into the Gospel of Luke. And we move to this fairly well-known parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. This Sunday also, in preparing for this sermon, is um, uh, the James of Jerusalem Sunday. And James of Jerusalem is, is living as a brother of Jesus, and by tradition this is the brother from a what is believed to be a first marriage of, at least some churches will say, first marriage of Joseph. And that's how they, they come with the term brother. But he's in this period of time as the first leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, that is a fair, that is, it's just a generation after, in many senses, the generation after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of the things that we see in the Gospels are really relevant to the life of St. James of Jerusalem. So as we think about this uh, passage, I want us to reflect a little bit on St. James and just what was the Christian posture that Jesus was really giving us Uh, for his people that St. James lived into and that we ourselves are being invited to live into today. Well, this is a fairly uh, popular uh, parable. So I don't know if if you're like me, but I think as a little kid when I first would read, and by little I mean 12 or 13 when I first came across the scripture, I thought to myself, well, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Thank God. I don't do this. <laughs> I don't think I'm better than others. And that's exactly the wrong, you know, posture of the heart. And maybe you're like me and you thought to yourself, oh, okay, well, thank God. I'm also not like the Pharisee. I want to give us a little bit of uh, context for Pharisees and Sadducees and um, Zealots in this time period before we get into the text itself. This was a time period where the church, well, the church, um, God's people were under Rome. And this created some bit of controversy. The Herod we see in the early parts of the Gospels had throughout his life and, and throughout his reign, he'll be going, undergoing a massive building project in Jerusalem a massive building project to restore the temple. And how many of you have been to Jerusalem? Have you been to Jerusalem? Okay, so quite a few of you, or a few of you know that the the temple is up on a hill, right? And currently not a temple. There's the mosque 
on top, but there is also the Wailing Wall. But the temple itself is a very large structure. And if you could imagine the sense that a, a foreign leader is building your most sacred site, if you could imagine um, in, in uh, it, it's hard to describe. It's, it's in the sense that someone not of your faith is building something that's the most important thing to you. What I want you to imagine is this would be a bit controversial. Not everyone would be on board with the idea that Rome should rebuild our massive temples. Now, this created a few different groups that you will see throughout the Gospels. I mean, not just this time, but there's, there's a, a few groups had a few distinct attitudes to this rebuilding project and broadly what was going on in Israel at the time. The group that we see often in uh, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is dialoguing in these latter chapters quite regularly with, is the Pharisees. And I'd say in contemporary, the contemporary evangelical culture, the Pharisees get a pretty bad rap. <laughs> They're seen as uh, those opposed to God. They're seen as people who uh, don't get the law. They, they just, I mean, they don't get Jesus's message of mercy and Jesus's message of love. And what I want you to think about, though, is in particular the, the Pharisees were trying to take the temple worship and make it every day. They were trying to take the essence of the spirituality of the temple, this is N.T. Wright with this insight, and try to make it uh, accessible every day. Um, a Jewish scholar that uh, I read in preparation for the sermon will, will actually say that the, the Pharisees in, in their lineage, you can make a case that this is actually the long lineage of what will eventually become the modern rabbi, meaning worship for, the, for God's people, for the Jewish people, that is apart from the temple in particular. The second group that you have are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are your temple worshipers. They are the ones that are most comfortable with this relationship with Rome. They're most comfortable with how things are. They also tend to be a bit wealthier from what they can tell. And so the Sadducees are, are in this context as well. And then you have the Zealots. The Zealots are those who want to go the next mile. What's popular in this day is this expectation that the Messiah would come. And that what the Messiah would do is he, they would overthrow Rome. They'd have another great leader, a leader like David, but even better, who would restore Israel, throw off Rome, and you would have then again Israel with the, a, a temple that would be restored, worshiping God with its own king. Okay? You can see throughout the Gospels the sense of questioning of Jesus. Are you the one? And they don't necessarily mean are you the one to restore faith as much as they also mean restore faith, but restore the glory, the glory of the people of God that they would be free, truly free. So then in this context, we have this parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Want to notice this, once you notice this word, righteous. The sense of righteousness in this time period was really, sense, it was really the sense of uh, the sort of unmerited favor one would get to approach the king, right? So when you approach the king, not anyone could just approach the king. We couldn't just go 
and say hello. I mean, we maybe can get a sense of this today. Not, not everyone, you know, we can't just walk to the White House door, knock, and, and approach, right? Though, with our members of Congress, this is not the case. We can actually approach and say hello to them. They, they don't have to grant a special dispensation. But the sense of being righteous means that you, you have come in and you have unmerited favor. You can then ad address the king. And so the sense of what's occurring here in the temple, they, they, it says two men went up into the temple to pray. Okay, So in temple worship, you would have the, the worship services would be in you know, two times a day, once at dawn and once about 3 o'clock. So this is uh, believed to be about the 3 o'clock hour where they've come in. And in the temple worship, there is sacrifice that's being made, but there's a, there's a point in the worship service where there's a pause. And in that pause, while uh, you can say prayers, private prayers out loud, okay? So you have three o'clock, it's in the temple, the Pharisee is there, and then you have a tax collector. And, the, and it's in this middle of the service at 3 o'clock where the Pharisee is standing by himself. So why is he standing by himself? Or why is Luke giving us the sense that he's standing by himself? He's giving us the sense because the Pharisee doesn't want to be uh, defiled by those who are part of the worship service of the temple. The Pharisees are not the only group going to the temple to pray. You'd have other Jews, you'd have other Sadducees, you'd have zealots, you'd have other people coming to pray. So he doesn't know if everyone is following the law like he's following the law, so he needs to stand apart to be ritually pure. And the thing that's occurring here, uh, and I'm, I'm aided this and with some background material, Kenneth Bailey in particular, or the late Kenneth Bailey, he, he um, gives this insight that they're actually... The Pharisees actually praying out loud in a way so the tax collector, he posits, could hear that he's being prayed against. So there is such a context. Uh, Kenneth Bailey was a Middle East scholar where in his own life, he said, you know, when I was a chaplain in the Middle East, I had two people who would pray at different parts of the day. This is his story. And they actually would pray against each other. And they would say these public prayers saying, Lord, you know how unrighteous my neighbor is. And the next day, the next gentleman would come in and the same, say the same thing. So the Pharisee in this instance is really wanting to make sure that the tax collector knows to be educated a little bit about how sinful he is. So, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, which is the tax collector, right? So if you think about tax collector, you can imagine in this uh, environment where Rome is rebuilding, is over the people of God, um, that the Roman system of taxation, the way the tax collector made money is the tax collector would need to overcharge, right? Because Rome wasn't paying the tax collector. So if the tax collector was going to make the money, he's going to overcharge. So the sense is that not only is he working, this unjust tax collector working for Rome, but he's also overcharging, or at least he assumes um, that he's overcharging. So he's unjust by the very nature. Idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. So the Pharisees um, took the, the one fast for the Day of Atonement, made it into a fast 
for all the major religious festivals, about 10, and then on top of that, they fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, Monday for the day that they believe Moses went up, Thursday the day he went down. So what the Pharisees thought about is there's the law, and then we should add on top of the law to really make sure we don't get close, right? Don't get close to violating God's law and being in sin and being impure. And so he's really trying to show, in this public prayer, trying to show the tax collector, you know, you're not even close. <laughs> you're not even close to the righteousness that I have attained through, these, uh, through this. I give tithes of all that I get. So all that I get would mean that this Pharisee would do everything from vegetable tithing to oil tithing. He tithe everything, right? But the tax collector standing far off, so the tax collector is a little bit back, would not lift up his eyes to heaven. This is an interesting detail. Because in the temple, if you were to pray, you would be praying like this, open as part of the public worship. This tax collector is so overcome with his sin and his guilt that he's staring on the floor, right? Cannot even look up in this posture of open prayer. So there's a contrast being shown. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he beat his breast, it says. The other time in the Gospels where we have the, best, the breast being beaten is um, when they're coming back from, from Jesus being crucified. They beat their breasts. This is what's being said. This is another insight from Kenneth Bailey. He would say that in his time in the Middle East, only women would beat their breast. And they would beat their breast when they were at a funeral, or he said, uh, when um, they were really mad and about to charge at you. They would beat their breast. This is a Middle Eastern custom. But men, Kenneth Bailey would say, would never really beat their breast. So to be at that level of grief, of beating your breast, to say, have mercy on me, and the wording here is not kyrieleison in Greek. It's the wording related to make an atonement for me. So what's being said at this time where the atonement is being made, the daily atonement is being made, is God, do you have an extra atonement for me, for my sins? That's his prayer. And Jesus says that I tell you, that, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee believed that through his scrupulous keeping of the law, so scrupulous and so righteous that he could lord this over others. In fact, it was his duty to lord this over to others. He thought he was doing everyone a favor because then they would know. They would know what, it would, what they would need to do to be righteous. And the tax collector, understanding the nature of God, is begging for release, begging for release. How do we think about this in our day as we think about this context, the Pharisee and the tax collector? We have expectations um, as Christians in present-day America. 
expectations that generally you would pay your taxes, <laughs> that you would raise your children well, that you would not extort your neighbor. This is, these are expe cultural expectations that Christians have of one another in this moment. And yet we, and we believe in a God whose grace is, the grace of God is for everyone. I, there, there'd be very few Christians in America where you would say, can anyone be saved? And they would all say everyone could be saved, right? Where we tend to struggle is not the concept, can everyone be saved? Where we tend to struggle is the application of that one person in our lives who drives us crazy. <laughs> or two, or maybe you have 20. I don't know how many you have. But we will get into these circumstances, often in families, but not always. Sometimes at work, but not always. Sometimes just at the random bad encounter out in public. Person cuts you off while you're driving. Person's very rude to you as you're going about your normal business. And in that circumstance, we take the place of the Pharisee and we say, oh Lord, not, not that person, right? Not that person. And why do we do this? Well, we're angry, we're mad, we've been hurt. But there's an invitation in the gospel lesson and in our readings from 2 Timothy and in our readings from the Psalm in our reading from the Old Testament. There's an invitation to turn from judgment towards prayer. And often this is much easier said than done. It sounds very nice, right? That we, every time that we are at our most upset, at the hardest relationship might be a parent, can just turn right to prayer. Well, this is where the historic church as we think again about St. James and his context, offers us some really wonderful examples. The pattern of life for Corpus Christi, broadly with the Anglican Communion, common prayer for uncommon transformation, that pattern of life pushes us into periods of prayer. We, unlike the parable, aren't waiting for the sacrifice of the temple once a day. Instead, we believe Jesus is our sacrifice, right? So in that pattern where Jesus is our sacrifice, the historic church gives us this pattern of prayer, morning, evening, and then in the, in the monastic setting, it's, it's at a regular period for prayers throughout the day. In the Book of Common Prayer, we have morning, middle of the day, and evening. And so you have an opportunity, even once a week, for Holy Eucharist to come and pray. And some of us may not have that opportunity to always be at a physical space, but we are invited in contemporary evangelical thought, we would say through our morning devotions, but if you add the, within the Book of Common Prayer, through the Book of Common Prayer, to have a set-aside time. A set-aside time where you can pray. The prayers from the Book of Common Prayer, the prayers of the saints, and also personal devotional prayer. And you have the scriptures, and you have scriptural, scriptural reading. And we have all these practices not so that we might, in our prayers later on, say, 
Lord, I thank you that I can pray. I've prayed every day. Unlike the sinners, we don't have it for that reason. We have it to push us back into our central challenge, which is life is very full when so much is demanded of you. And so in that in that place, and I understand this being a father of five, having lots of things that happen. I was thinking just just before going up, I feel like it's a miracle that I'm here this morning and that I'm preaching. These lots can occur between when you leave a house and when you're here. And in that pattern, what these disciplines, what the prayers are supposed to do is that it invites you into a place where you can make sacred places in your home moments, and I don't mean in terms of sacramental sacred, but I mean in a place where God can come to meet you so that you might, as you walk with the Lord, get to a place of saying, oh, that's right, I have this beef. I have this really strong anger. I have this really strong disappointment with this particular person. Sometimes again in the family, maybe sometimes at work, sometimes in experience. The life of prayer and the life that Jesus calls us to is not necessarily a life of perfection, What it is, it is the opportunity to repent and to pray and to have a soft heart towards those that have deeply wounded us or harmed us. And again, the reason I'm going there is I think where we struggle often with a pharisaical spirit is we do get into these circumstances in the present day where we just really struggle to pray for those that have harmed us. And the disciplines of the church move us into a place where we can return in a posture of prayer. Second, when we think of St. James of Jerusalem, think about his life. If you know, so the life of Jesus is, is at this bookend of... Um, People assuming that there would be a political of the Messiah to save Israel. Within 30 to 40 years afterwards, you will actually get the outbreak of war in uh, Jerusalem and with, with the Jews and Rome. And this war is predicated on a massive rebellion. And with when the when that war occurs, the temple will be destroyed, and the Sadducees uh, kind of They don't exist anymore in history. There's going to be great tumult within the 40-year time period after the life of Jesus. Within this tumult, we get St. James. St. James, who is a small church, and they're asked to pray. They're asked to contend with the faith. And they're asked to be gracious with their enemies. The early church did not take up arms during the war with Israel and The Jews, they did not take up arms. They did not fight. So in that contemporary context where they kept a posture of peace, of loving their enemies, of prayer, of hope, we can often think of our present day where we may come across political speech that asks us to take up sides, to take up arms. That is a bit of a sense that we must fight. 
And Jesus has disarmed the powers and principalities and does not invite us into that fight. He invites us to love our enemies. So we can set aside and trust that God, the same God, who took the church through that tumultuous period in the early days where war and society would be uprooted, the same God who gave us hope and trust and had the church move forward is the same God present today with his people. And so when we're asked to take up sides, when we're asked to take up arms, I'm not saying don't engage the process, but we don't need to engage it in this sort of apocalyptic sense that all is at stake. All is not at stake because we have a God who in Christ, we have fellowship with people of every tongue, language and culture on the earth. So no culture ends up being preeminent except for the Christian people shaped in Christ's image. And that is the real wonderful hope. And so as I close, this small parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector gives us, Jesus' day was as tumultuous, if not more, as our day. And the Pharisees had one attitude that would exclude their neighbors and lord it over their neighbors. And we're invited as the church, through our disciplines, through our habits, through our pursuit of Christ, seeking first the kingdom of God, to have the attitude in the heart of Jesus when it comes not only with our personal lives, but also our collective lives. And it's in that hope that we celebrate communion today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time to hear your word. We ask that you would speak to our hearts as you did to those who first heard Jesus in these words. Transform them, God. Push us into places where we have written others off and give us eyes to see and soft hearts to pray for the salvation of all people, especially those who are opposed to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.